Welcome to the IPv6 Buzz podcast, where we dare to dive into the 128-bit address space wormhole. Quick reminder, there's sponsorship opportunities available for IPv6 Buzz and all the other Packet Pusher podcast shows. If you're interested, you can go to packetpushers.net slash sponsorship and you can get all the details. And if you've got something cool working with V6, we definitely want to hear about it. So come join us. Um, I'm Ed Horley with my co-host Tom Coffin and Scott Hogue. And today we're going to chat about IPv6 ND or neighbor discovery. So <laughs> let's jump into it. This actually, uh, I'll provide a little bit of background. The reason we, we decided to chat about this was because uh, via Twitter from Tony, thanks, Tony, <laughs> he sent us over a blog article from, from AP Nick that was just published out that was written um, by Daryl and actually republished on AP Nick. And it actually talks about some interesting things around neighbor discovery and some observations he had about um, what was going on around his particular use case. But the only reason I really sort of thought it would be cool to talk about it is because it's an operational issue. Right? Normally when we talk about, about, uh, about neighbor discovery, it's sort of like, just like, this is one of the processes that happens and it's training and education, right? You guys, and we don't worry about it too much, but this actually was an operational issue with neighbor discovery. That was pretty, pretty fascinating. So it might be well, fun to chat about it. Absolutely. And we tend to, uh, at least, and I, I don't think for any nefarious reasons, but we tend to sort of focus on what neighbor discovery looks like on land segments, because I think that's pretty much where everyone first sort of gets exposed to it if they're learning IPv6 for the first time. And this is a slightly different case, right? I mean, it's not uh, not a land segment per se, um, or really a, a land segment that has a different purpose that, you know, isn't, isn't related to just having some hosts that you need to, you know, to get addressing and, and get on the land segment and, and route out to the internet, that sort of thing. So in this case, it's a, a peering session over uh, a BGP peering session and, uh, and some odd behavior, uh, based on some, some under the hood, uh, handling of neighbor discovery that we can talk through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just like IPv4, you could run it over a variety of layer two, you know, protocols, and they have different link layer addresses, not necessarily a MAC address. Mm -hmm. But on an Ethernet segment, you're right, we're used to thinking of MAC addresses bound to IPv6 addresses in the neighbor cache. But on a WAN link, it's a it's a link layer address or or whatever is is used for that type of layer two protocol. Maybe we can talk through quickly what the issue was. Um uh, that Daryl saw and and sort of what was was going on because he has a great blog article. We'll post the we'll post it in the show notes so folks can can go and read it because it's it's definitely worth the read. But it talks about specific functional areas of of how his setup was working for getting uh, his BGP session going uh, and some of the equipment he was using. But the specific problem that he was running into was if a packet had a global unicast uh, sourcing address and the destination was not a global unicast, such as it was a link local address instead, or even a ULA, I guess, uh, theoretically, it would drop the it would drop the traffic, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, and and he happened to be, be in a situation where he had a strict firewall rule that basically only allowed global unicast to global unicast, I believe, right? In terms of... Mm -hmm. Of traffic sets and so of course that's problematic if you got a global unicast going to a link local address for neighbor discovery for any given reason you're going to drop that traffic you're going to have issues in terms of neighbor discovery working properly which is obviously an issue because you can't get packets from one side to the other if you don't know where you're sending it right mm -hmm. um which is which is fundamentally broken um and i guess i guess maybe we talk a little bit about you know I, the behavior he was seeing was was basically flapping was was what was really what was going on because obviously the session comes up and goes down and then goes up and goes down and BGP really doesn't establish itself in any significant way because you can't get packets back and forth to each other. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess the fundamental is 
that uh, you're not guaranteed necessarily that uh, you're always going to be using global unicast or always going to be using link local addresses is sort of the crux crux of it and and that there's different implementation methods that can be happening on different platforms depending on how they interpreted the rfc right mm-hmm. um and that was cer- that was certainly the case here right where you had right. uh, some vendors that were behaving one way sending link local to link local and uh, and other vendors that were sending global unicast to link local so that there's that right. address selection piece if it's a point-to-point link, it may be uh, you know just that that one segment. But in some cases, you have like multiple layer three hops that you have to hit before you get to that that other peer. And of course, you you know you configure that with multi-hop. Uh, but this operationally is a little more challenging in a v6 environment if you're attempting to use link local addressing to establish that session. So, yeah, and and I think this is important to point out the difference uh, v4 to v6 too, right? Um, mm-hmm. And we have an operational model in V4 that, with the multi-hop, that I mean, you would never consider using. I don't know, it's true address, yeah, <laughs> or, yeah. or something to to get connect from one side to the other, right? From a yeah. from from that side of it. So there is some different operational considerations in terms of maybe there's a divergence between your V4 and V6 from a from a build and design perspective. Maybe not in terms of like the we can still use multi-hop, but you have to be. Uh, be more explicit and say like, yeah, I'm going to use a global unicast address to make this function or work because there's no way that link local addressing is going to work for that particular, uh, that particular design. That's right. I don't know. And then you have the wrinkle of whether or not the vendor is actually going to source the, the traffic from the right address. So, right. right. So, or if that's something you can even set, they may, yeah. I mean, if, 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 is that a knob that they give you um, capability wise within the, within the stack to be able to do that? So, yeah. Uh, it was it was very fascinating to read. It was I, and Daryl, thanks so much for for publishing the article on it because you did a great job writing up everything and explaining it. it was really it was uh, it was it was nice to see someone articulating something so clearly uh, mm-hmm. in regards to what the problem was. Uh, it's very very cool. But uh, for those that aren't sort of up to speed about sort of the neighbor discovery fundamentals, I mean, maybe we talk really briefly about it, even if it's just land to land segment side about. You know what really sort of goes on with ICMP version six, right? Yeah, and I think there's a larger theme here related to you know having this particular security practices that that are about you know just sort of in v4 you, you can get away with filtering things like ICMP and, and you typically do, and of course that breaks neighbor discovery in a in a, in a bad way with its reliance on ICMP v6 and and in this case you know what what triggered this issue that Daryl ran into was was actually firewall rules that that should have shouldn't have caused any problems, but, you know, he had to dig in to figure out where the problems were being caused based on, on the variance in the, uh, the vendor platform behavior. Um, but yeah, I think it's a good place to start in that uh, you've got some behavior under the hood that you don't have to consider in IPv4 with IPv6. Uh, you know, it's, it's different enough that, that your existing sort of security regime can end up just breaking things right out of the box if you're, if you're not paying attention. Yeah. Cause on IPv4, you might wholesale filter ICMP and you also might wholesale filter multicast traffic, mm, you know, mm-hmm. on, on an interface, you know, particularly around a firewall or something like that, where security teams being very, you know, careful and, and judicious. And with <laughs> IPv6, you think, oh, well, I don't need ICMPv6. I'm going to filter that. And I don't need multicast. So I'm going to filter all FF00 slash eight on that interface. <laughs> and then you wonder why you, you don't have next top reachability 
you know, it might work for five minutes. And then when your neighbor cash times out, then it's an outage right. yep. uh, because you, you need to rely upon that FE80 addresses to communicate on the LAN. You need FF02 link local, you know, well-known multicast to function on an interface to keep that binding of the next hop IPv6 address or link local address. It could be a global or a link local address bound to the link layer address, the MAC address or or whatever. And you need that to keep that state uh, up and up and active. Yeah. And, it, and I think those are important points because we don't think about those things in IPv4 in the same way, mm -hmm. right? We don't, we don't typically, I mean, it's very rare that you're seeing security teams saying we need to filter ARP and reverse ARP, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, around how those, those protocols work, but we move those out of, out of that two and a half zone and up into the three zone, right? In terms mm -hmm. of, yeah. uh, you know, in terms of layer three services um, and utilizing ICMP version six to really you know, sort of build the glue. Yeah. Um, and and that may not be obvious to security teams. Mm -hmm. And so neighbor discovery from a pure operational perspective is very different than how we operate in V4. And I think what this post really highlights is that neighbor discovery can have operational impacts for you around neighbor solicitation, neighbor advertisement, how your peering sessions go. And this is important, not just for BGP, for but for things like OSPF too. OSPF, right, is pure, you know, <laughs> It's it's going to be it's going to be all you know for the most part you know link local addressing that builds session connections back and forth with each, with each other and 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 that's how OSPF is going to establish neighbor peers. So if you're doing things that are blocking you know link local addressing because you think it only should be global unicast addresses, you might want to think again. Right. Yeah. Because security people don't go in and block. ARP, which uses a subnet broadcast, right. so they don't, they don't block all IPv4 traffic going to 192.168.1.255, the subnet broadcast. And so they allow that to take place. And ARP is an independent protocol and not doesn't rely upon ICMP. But then in IPv6, yeah, you're right, Ed, we've changed the structure and neighbor discovery relies upon ICMPv6, which then relies upon link layer and link local addresses and link local well, you know, uh, multicast on that right. LAN interface. And so yeah, solicited to know multicast addresses are important. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. in, in terms exactly. of making sure that you can reach stuff. And, and ICMP is leveraging multicast to be able to do that discovery process. It's mm -hmm. literally yelling on the wire saying, Okay, who has this address? <laughs> I'm going to use multicast to do it, right? Um, and and while it's only bound within a, a a local land segment from from you know from FFO2, right? It's not going to extend past that. It still is incredibly important that that it work properly. And then when you go down to the Ethernet layer, right? You're you're dealing with all your threes, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. I think Denise Fishburne has a really good presentation about uh, about multicast and, and debugging yeah. all your threes at the Ethernet level. Mm -hmm. um, you're gonna you're gonna see all those Ethernet related multicast frames that are based mm -hmm. off of what you know IPv6 is producing on the FFO2 side. Yeah. So just just realize that that stuff is is all happening in order to make neighbor discovery work. Like it doesn't work if, <laughs> if that glue and that portion of the stack isn't happening for solicitation or advertisement, right? Either one. Yeah. 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 So just for our listeners, you know, with IPv4, an IPv4 multicast packet 
in an, when it gets placed into an Ethernet frame, gets marked with a destination MAC address of 01005E, and uh, that indicates it's a multicast MAC. And with yes. an IPv6 packet into an you know, 802.3, you know, Ethernet 2 frame, the destination MAC address is 3333, and then it embeds the V6 address of the multicast group at, at the end of it. And that indicates that it's a IPv6 multicast MAC. So usually you look at that first hex, or it's like the second hex digit yeah. of the multicast of the MAC address in the destination. And if it's an odd number, then you know that the one is set indicating it's a multicast. Anyway, that's real nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> there's the larger theme there, though. There's, you know, these these kinds of changes, you know, the, there's not a one-to-one -one sort of, you know, how layer two to layer three is mapped, you know, between V4 and V6. It's, you know, you there there is a whole lot more that you have to sort of be aware of and learn. And, and it can be a little discouraging. It's like, well, what a complicated mess, you know, if you're just used mm -hmm. to this sort of relative simplicity of V4, um, but it, it is, I'm here to tell you, it is, it is learnable. It is, uh, you know, it is something you can get your mind around in, in fairly short order once you sort of know where all the, the, the elements of it are and sort of where they live. And, and, you know, as we've said over and over again, uh, Wireshark is, is your intimate friend in this, in this, uh, you know, this odyssey that you have of like figuring out layer two to layer three in, in V6 with neighbor discovery. Uh, mm -hmm. And of course, that's what we saw in Daryl's blog post. It's like, okay, time to break out the wire shark and, and see exactly what's going on on, yeah. on the on the wire. That's that's going to give you the 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 worm's eye view that gets you to the place where it's more operationally manageable in the in the in the shortest time frame. Yeah, I think we all learned these things the first time we had to troubleshoot an IPv4 broadcast storm, <laughs> and we we're like, oh yeah, it uses broadcast. Oh, okay, I see why this is bad. And IPv6 learned from that and said, well, let's use multicast and make this a lot more efficient. Yeah. Yes. Right. We still have, we still have this same theoretical process of a broadcast. It's just leveraging multicast to be able to do it for the few occasions that you might want to do it. And you have to sort of be explicit that you want to do it that way. Yeah. So I, I guess it becomes yeah. a little bit more intentional versus uh, accidental maybe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Ed, Ed, you mentioned, you know, Denise Fishburne's great articles about, you know, the solicited node multicast group. And so the neighbor solicitation goes out to a much smaller, you know, yes. subset of nodes. And just like with IPv4, the ARP reply comes back unicast back to the source that asked the question. In IPv6, the neighbor advertisement is also sent back unicast. And that neighbor advertisement is a unicast message back from you know the destination that you know the first node intends to talk to it has its v6 address but doesn't know the mac that neighbor advertisement comes back from that destination and it goes back to that node that asked the question mm -hmm. saying hey here's here's the answer to your question here's my mac address or here's my link layer address right and it goes back unicast and so that could use link layer communication between those nodes, or it could use the global address. Yes. And that's kind of what, you know, uh, or ULA. <laughs> yeah. Daryl's, <laughs> you know, Daryl's, you know, article is about is what's the, the type or class of address. Is it global or is it link local that is sourcing that neighbor advertisement traffic back? Yeah. So, and, and, and he's rightfully pointing out the RFC 
technically both behaviors are RFC compliant, mm-hmm. that, that yeah. it's not clearly defined in the RFC. I don't know, Tom, if that's what you're no, saying. No, that's right. <laughs> well, and, that, and then, then we're back to the vendor question. It's like, how's the vendor mm-hmm. handling this? You know, and then yeah. of course the ULA, if you, if now we're obligated, you mentioned ULA, it's like, uh, you know, standing, standing in front of the mirror, <laughs> standing in front of the mirror and saying Bloody Mary three times, you know, or five times or whatever it is. You've, you've mentioned it, you've invoked ULA. And then so if we're obligated, we're contractually obligated to-, uh, to I, I only remind. said it once. It's not like Beetlejuice, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're contra- contractually obligated to, and morally obligated to, to warn listeners that, you know, ULA, if you're, if the, imagine the complications that Daryl would run into attempting to use mm-hmm. ULA in that same environment. Yes. Um, you know, just because mm-hmm. it, all the stuff that we've covered before well, about how ULA just doesn't source get- address, yeah, source yeah. address selection becomes a real thing for all of these platforms. Yeah. So yeah, if right. how's Cisco doing it? How's Juniper doing it? How's Arista doing it? How's Huawei doing it? How's Extreme doing it? How's Microtech? Like all the vendors, you're going to have to, depending on what's in your environment, you might be dealing with something different on each one of them. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, just little right. bananas yeah. uh, mm-hmm. to think about. So there's there are issues that go along with that. Now, technically, there's an RFC that specs the source destination address selection process, uh, 6724, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that everything is behaving the way that you think, depending on how they walk through that process. And That's right. And as Daryl points out, it's like, okay, this is in the RFC, but it, it really is vendor interpretation of the RFC that leaves you in, an, in a situation where you've got to do your own troubleshooting to figure out what's actually going on and recognizing that, oh, look, this vendor does it differently than this other vendor. I had this weird problem in my IPv6 lab where I, I looked in the neighbor cache of one node and I realized, oh my gosh, I have one MAC address that has like 16 or 20 different global addresses. I'm like, what is going on? This system is getting a new address every, I don't know, few seconds to a minute. And I was like, what is going on? And I, I started to dig into it, pulled out my you know trusty Wireshark and looked at what was going on. And what I realized is that this interface kept flapping. It would go down and then it would come back up. And every time it would come back up, this network was doing Slack. And mm-hmm. so it would give itself a new interface identifier every time it brought the network interface back up. It transition, you know, it would send an RS, get back an RA, get a new interface identifier using Slack. But they the I noticed that in the neighbor cache of the upstream router, all of these devices, or one device with one MAC address had many addresses. Right. And these would come and go and it would fill up and, and they would drop off the neighbor cache once the neighbor cache expired for these old addresses. So it only held so many. It wasn't like a thousand of these. It was mm-hmm. like maybe 20. Turned out that the NIC of this client had energy efficient Ethernet and green energy and wake on magic packet enabled (laughs) driver. And because this is a lab environment, it wasn't seeing a lot of traffic. So it would shut down the interface. Like, hey, I'm going to save some energy, which I applaud. But (laughs) it would shut down the interface. Then it would hear something else on the network, like maybe a MLD query or something on the right. and from the router, and then it would or an OSPF hello, and then it would wake up. Oh my gosh! Oh, someone talking to me, and then it would go through that process again. So I had to go <laughs> in and disable those sub features of the NIC driver, and mm-hmm. then it was stable after that. So, so that was I wonder, I, I wonder if a magic packet is is MDNS considered a magic packet to wake things. I'm curious. Yeah, I don't know what's the packet that was waking it back up, but I saw this behavior and 
once I fixed it, then it was stable. It wasn't flapping the interface. <laughs> so all the energy that was saved by that, the interface shutting itself <laughs> down, was then lost on the back end by the layer two to layer three, like churn. <laughs> on, the, on the router platform so as a router fan spins up trying to almost <laughs> that's right well uh, in my brain my brain power i i wasted at least 100 calories <laughs> trying carb, to figure this out carb carb loading to figure out your neighbor discovery issues yeah uh, i had to eat a muffin <laughs> <laughs> too funny well i it's i I think what it shows you is that there are definitely, um, uh, even even though something as simple as neighbor discovery and NDP, um, uh, it's it does have operational impacts for folks. And it's something that you need to learn the fundamentals. I think it's mm -hmm. just us saying over and over again to, to the audience, learn the fundamentals about IPv6 as a protocol so that you really, when you're trying to troubleshoot, when you're trying to figure out what's going on, and this is a great example of exactly that, you're going to have to understand how these protocols fundamentally work in order yeah. to understand where you're running into operational issues. And, and I'll just yeah. add what Tim, uh, our colleague, Tim Martin always says about this and some of the other Cisco folks as well. It's like, if you, uh, if, if you understand what a solicited node multicast address is and what it does, I, I think that's like a, probably a pretty good sort of metric for your understanding of neighbor discovery. You know, it's like, once you get to the point where you can share that with your, your close friends and family who will, you know, obviously fall asleep with boredom as you try to explain it to them. <laughs> but if you, if you can explain it to strangers at the bus stop, then, you know, you've, you're really at the level where you understand what neighbor discovery is and, and, uh, and you're in good shape to, to, you know, troubleshoot it if you need to. Yeah. And they're captive there at the bus stop. They can't flee. So they're trapped. <laughs> I must listen to you talk about it. You're talking about, man. It's calling an Uber. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do you need to do to yeah. escape neighbor discovery? Call an Uber. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So I'd recommend people, yeah, read that article from Denise Fishburne. Also, Rick Graziani's book, IPv6 yeah. Fundamentals, goes into this in great detail. He's a great teacher. He's a great writer. And so I recommend his book often. Yes. Yeah. And for bonus points, you can learn the uh, the neighbor discovery cache uh, state machine. That's that's always a fun one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> understand why your entries are always stale. And you're like, I just use that address. How can it be stale? Yeah. Well, and then delay and probe. I don't know. Those are. <laughs> well, then to add excitement on top of all of this, then of course you know Apple and some other devices for for privacy for 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 the points of 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 wireless devices. Of course, does like you know rapid address changes and and things like that. So yeah, yeah. there's a whole there's a whole other side of the equation of like okay, how long does an address actually last and wake on LAN and you know. It's just more fun for optimizing what what things like wireless networks have to put up with in terms of how quickly addresses change out for hosts and what you have to do to purge your neighbor discovery uh, yep. tables on on your devices in order to account for all the addresses that a that a device might be you know making its way through as it wakes every single time. <laughs> That's just a bit of joy for the audience. Another operational issue for all the wireless folks out there, and <laughs> not that they don't have enough. That's right. All right, you guys. Well, I think we covered a, a good portion, at least on the neighbor discovery side for operational issues. I think it's, it's uh, I'm you know, really appreciative of Tony pointing the article out and then also Daryl actually writing the article and, and yeah. Nick republishing it. That's very cool. It's good to see a lot more articles coming out around V6 just as a general rule of thumb. It's, mm -hmm. I think there's been a, a big uptick overall just in terms of uh, uh, content available out there. Mm -hmm. Well, hey, 
Unlike V6, we run out of space for this podcast. You can reach the IPV6 Buzz podcast on Twitter at IPV6 Buzz. You can also hit up each one of us on Twitter. Uh, Tom is at IPV6 Tom. Scott is at Scott Hogue. And I'm at E. Horley. Thanks for listening to the IPV6 Buzz. You can find us on the Packet Pushers or any of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for IPV6 Buzz. And if you like the show, please give us a rating on, uh, on iTunes. And if you like this podcast, we really recommend you check out Heavy Networking, Day 2 Cloud, and the Network Break Podcast, plus all the other great technical content over at PacketPushers.net. So long and until next time, we'll see you on the internet. The IPv6 internet, that is. Thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz, a podcast devoted to truth, justice, and 128 bits of address space. IPv6.